But first of all, it's time to head to the UK to talk to Ian Dunt. Ian is, of course, a columnist for the Eye newspaper and author of How Westminster Works and uh, Why It Doesn't. Ian, uh, take us to the prison hulk. It looks almost as large as the Titanic. Yeah, so these are the new uh, boats that are being used to hold asylum seekers, or rather those who used to be allowed to seek asylum and are now just to be chucked into a large and ever-growing detention estate while we refuse to process their claims and just try to send them off to some other country to deal with the problem, countries like Rwanda. Um, These boats, they're very large, they're very... I mean, they're very ugly looking. They look like massive prison boats. And of course, that's part of the purpose. Like Part of what's happening with the refugee system here is a kind of theatre of sadism, uh, an attempt to look as cruel and vindictive as possible, ostensibly on the claim that this would discourage people from taking the boats. Of course, there's never been any evidence whatsoever that that does discourage it. In reality, it's to placate the small electoral group in the country that the Conservatives think want this kind of attitude towards refugees. And so we find ourselves lost in this sort of endless spiral towards more and more inhumane and immoral behaviour, of which these prison barges are just the latest example. Please tell me there's a huge amount of pushback. Of course, there's a massive amount. I mean, you know, most interestingly, quite a lot of it from the fire services and from the medical services. You know, in the medical case, they say, well, look, this is just prone for disease outbreak. And in the fire services, they say, we cannot make these places safe and you should not be behaving in this way when you don't have to. Now, they have both been written off. The fire services in particular were written off by the Home Secretary as a kind of labour organised trade union, a part of a liberal socialist plot against the great sort of, you know, will of the people rhetoric of the government. The Labour Labour government, I'm getting rather ahead of myself, the Labour opposition um, have also come out against them. Um, They said rather reasonably over the weekend, look, we cannot guarantee that we can make this go away on day one when we get into power. But within six months, we are going to be stopping this from happening and getting rid of the barges. Now, there was a lot of pushback from the left saying Labour's not being tough enough. It seemed to me that that was a completely reasonable thing for them to say. It's like, look, it's just not practical to to claim that we would do this on day one, but we will get rid of them. So there is opposition. And once Labour gets into power, if indeed it does as we expect it to next year, we would expect to see these things turned around. What about the so-called Rwanda solution? Uh, remains unlawful. So, I mean, they've got themselves into this extraordinary pickle, right? The, the problem with what they're doing is this, is we used to process asylum claims. You could do it slow, you could do it fast. But once you actually found that someone didn't have an asylum claim, so for instance, people that came from Pakistan, unless they were sort of, you know, atheist bloggers or, um, or they were gay, it was quite hard for them to secure the asylum claim. So lots of the time they got sent back and you could do that because you had processed the claim, you had refused it, and then you could legally under the refugee convention send people back or of course you accept the claim and they become taxpayers they contribute to the economy you don't have to put them in a barge or in a hotel or in rented accommodation and just pay for them all the time they actually are net contributors to the economy the new policy as passed by the illegal migration bill uh, last week i beg your pardon the week before that is to simply not process any of the claims so there's only three options of what you can do you start by locking people up 
and you have to get rid of them. So option number one is you try to return them to their country of origin, but you can't do that because you haven't processed the claim. Legally, you can't do it. Option number two is to return them to a European country that they pass through, but because of Brexit, we can't do that either. And option number three is to find a third country, a third party that you can just offload them onto. And that's what the Rwanda plan was. It's essentially to say to Rwanda, look, we'll give you this money. You just take all of them, deal with the problem. That has been found unlawful by the courts. And until that changes, the government has no idea where it will put the people that it is currently uh, traumatizing, I think is probably the fairest word to use for what they're doing. So they're completely stuck. Until that changes, will it change? One hopes not. It might do... Well, it, will, it is definitely going to the Supreme Court. So it's being appealed by the government in the Supreme Court, and that will come in the autumn towards the end of the year. Uh, the thing is, even if Rwanda works, I mean, they can take like a few hundred people, right? You know, we have tens of thousands of people who arrive here on those small boats every year. So even if you got the Rwanda policy working, you're looking at about one to 2% of the people who arrive. They claim that they're in conversations with five other African countries. They can't name them. We don't think they exist. They came out yesterday and started talking about how they were going to use Ascension Island, which is this tiny sort of administrative zone, no indigenous population. Uh, you know, you need the authorization of either the US or the UK governments in order to enter it as some kind of offloading center. That makes no sense either, given that the, the legal case in Rwanda was, can you guarantee that there's a fair process of asylum taking place in Rwanda? If it's been found to be unlawful on that basis for Rwanda, it's certainly not going to be lawful in Ascension Island. So they really don't have any idea what it is that they are doing. And of course, at any moment, they could just turn around and say, we're going to process the claims. Rather than what they're doing, these, these insane, vindictive ideas, they could just sit there and actually process people's asylum claims, which they have been failing to do for years now, and the problem would start to ameliorate. But that is not something that suits their culture war narrative. Climate change is front of mind for most people in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment, and you say it's become an important issue at recent by-elections. How, Ian? A pretty disastrous series of events, if we're honest. It was the Uxbridge by-election. This is the by-election in Boris Johnson's uh, old seat um, to pick a new MP. Now, Labour should have won that seat. I mean, it was certainly winning with much higher margins in other seats, but it didn't. And it didn't for a very interesting reason, that in outer London, it's currently about to get hit by something called the ultra-low emission zone. It's called ULES, which basically applies to about 10% of cars which are very polluting, and they get charged a, a sort of daily fee for still using the, the vehicle. Now, in that very local issue, there was a lot of upset at the Labour mayor, Sadiq Khan. And for that reason, by a very, very small margin, the Tories managed to hold on. Now, it was a tiny margin with an esoteric local issue. But what they've taken from that is potentially historically disastrous. They've taken essentially that they can turn environmental issues into a culture war and it gives them some defence against the oncoming Labour attack. Labour are quite proud of their green credentials. This has now been utilised by Rishi Sunak. So he's been running around writing pieces about how he's on the side of the motorists, demanding that councils take down low traffic neighbourhoods, in which I live in a low traffic neighbourhood. It's immeasurably improved the quality of life here. You can actually see children play on the street rather than just constant traffic. And he started telling local councils that, that he's going to overrule them if they set their speed limits to 20 uh, miles per hour. He's opening up as much exploitation of North Sea oil and gas as possible. He's coming out very hard against environmentalists. And so suddenly what you see is that very dangerous moment where, you know, even Boris Johnson, to give him credit, 
was pro-climate change action. You know, he saw that as a way to make progress politically. He saw it as a way of making good relations with Joe Biden. There was broad cross-party consensus on the issue. Now Rishi Sunak seems to be turning with alarming speed away from that and trying to turn environmentalism into another culture war issue to go along with the refugee one. A foreign affairs committee has been looking into the Wagner Group and the UK government's response to it. What on earth did they find? It's a fascinating report, which says quite a bit about the Wagner Group, but also rather a lot about the sort of deterioration in the capacity and the competence of the British state. Whenever you see British spies or MI6 and Hollywood movies, whether it's sort of Mission Impossible or James Bond or Marvel's Secret Invasion program, they're always, I mean, they might be sort of tough-minded, nasty people, the spies, the British spies, but they're always portrayed as quite competent. What this report showed was sort of the precise opposite, that the Wagner Group's now been around for over 10 years. It operates as a kind of semi-autonomous genocide machine for the Russian government, pursuing the Russian government's interests overseas, securing funding for the Russian government in return, operating in a half-privatized, half-public sector capacity in a post-truth kind of militia formation. Now, it's been doing that for 10 years and the British government has shown absolutely no interest in it whatsoever. It's shown a fundamental lack of understanding as to how it operates or how the funding might assist in Russia from sidestepping sanctions. When the committee, this is a Commons Committee of MPs, asked the government for a take on it, I mean, they spent weeks just trying to find out which department was ostensibly supposed to be responsible for seeing what this group was doing. When they finally threw up a minister, in the words of MPs, he was completely unable to offer any kind of coherent thoughts as to what the group was or how you would tackle it. And worst of all, when some people in Britain under the Bellingcat investigatory uh, website did try and take their threats seriously and write about them, the, the Treasury lifted Britain's own sanctions on Russia to allow the members of the Wagner Group to sue them for libel. So, I mean, really, you just find the most self-defeating, self-harming and utterly ignorant foreign policy posture you could imagine and a real damning indictment of Britain's capacity when it comes to that whole area of political life. Before I let you go, the ABC Four Corners uh, last night ran a programme looking at our privatisation of the Australian public service and uh, the opaque world of... uh, government consultancy. Let's hear a little. The explosion in the number of consultants followed a cull of 15,000 public servants after the Abbott government came to office in 2013. A cap on recruitment was also imposed. The intention had been to cut costs, but consultants filled the vacuum. Federal government spending on the big four is now six times higher than it was 10 years ago. Sound familiar, Ian? (laughs) Yeah, it does, very much. So we have to say, I mean, look, we, we have massive gaps in our civil service capacity and its expertise in whole wide-ranging commercial areas, contract management, business acumen, information technology, project management, commercial awareness, risk management. So what they do is they fill these positions with private contractors. They come in, I mean, they are 
unbelievably expensive. I mean, there was, in 2016, there was an assessment of the consultants working in the civil service for the private sector. There were 47 of them with a day rate of over £1,000. That's much more than we pay to permanent secretaries, the top of a, de of a department in the civil service. So they cost a lot of money. They stuck around for an extraordinarily long period of time. I mean, when they did a test in the Home Office in 2015, they found there were seven members of the department who'd been there for over seven years, costing one point. 4 million quid at a time. But the most pernicious thing they do is um, they essentially deprofessionalize your public sector civil service. Once you start looking for these skills, in, let's say in contract management, uh, uh, in the private sector, you mean that you lose those skills in your public sector. And very quickly, what you find is civil servants are unable to give a proper assessment to their minister as to what's commercially sensible. You find your civil service stops acting as an intelligent customer. And then you get the linkage with privatization programs of public services. So say we privatize probation in this country. And what you'll find is there's just private sector people in the civil service, these contractors who are talking to the private sector people who are now going to take over the roles that were previously done by the state, all arranging things between them without any real sense of democratic oversight, all just dealing with taxpayer money and matters of the public interest. It is a really debilitating, corrosive process that doesn't even succeed on the basis of value for money and leaves you with a deprofessionalised civil service at the end of it. Good on you, Ian. Ian Dunt, columnist for the I newspaper and our regular UK correspondent. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.